0: And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us, thanks be to God. This is a model of Caesarea Philippi built based on the excavations that have been done there and other things. It was the seat of government for the Tetrarch Philip. Philip was the son of Herod the Great, one of the three sons of Herod the Great. He didn't trust any of them and so when he knew he was near the end of his life, he divided his rule up into three areas and none of them were particularly successful and Philip got this part of the northern part uh, of the country and he named it, that, that he would built the town up, it was quite small, he built it up into his seat of, of authority, of government, and he named it after himself, as you do, and he named it after Caesar, who was his great patron, because you might know your history, that the Herodians, the family of Herod, were puppet kings of the Roman Empire. Not It's something they did frequently uh, around the world as a way of managing their massive empire. So who did these people say Jesus was? Well, it's important that we know where this happened. Caesarea Philippi is an important place. And people said, well, maybe he's John the Baptist returned or the taken the mantle of John the Baptist, who was a direct enemy of the Herodians. And Philip obviously has the one who had him killed. Or maybe he's Jeremiah, one of the other prophets who were the scourge all the way through the Hebrew scriptures of the kings and the priests, who weren't, in the view of the prophets, obeying God. They were public figures who spoke truth to power. And here they are, right in the middle of things, saying, people think you're one of these people. It's highly charged. And then Peter, when asked, well, okay, what about you, you lot, the disciples? Peter says, you're Messiah. And the Messiah just simply means chosen one. Greek for Messiah is Christ, Hebrew for Messiah is Messiah, uh, and it all means chosen one. But the only people who were ever chosen, if you go all the way through the Hebrew Scriptures, are kings, uh, emperors are chosen by God, that's the story that had been told particularly since Augustus of a hundred years before. Kings and emperors were the chosen ones. So they're saying, you're a chosen one, or you're the chosen one. And then he goes on and says, you're son of God. Well, the only people who got called son of God were the Caesars. In fact, there would have been in Caesarea Philippi, as there are in lots of places around the Roman world, lintels in which the words son of God are chiseled in. With the name of the the current Caesar next to them. Not only that, you're the Son of the Living God, and they're here in Caesarea Philippi. And this is a close-up of that cliff. Um, It's the the waters. It's the headwaters of the Jordan River. It's a very, very important place in a dry land, um, as we know, perhaps better than many other people, um, uh, when the River Murray is threatened by so many things. Uh, And you can see uh, just over to the left there, that cave, that's the gate of Hades. That's the temple, there was a temple built there to to Hades and Hades is the god of the dead. You can see better on this one all of the, um, the little niches that is all that's left of these big temples. To the to a number of different gods, particularly the god Pan, and uh, and particularly the god Hades. So you know they're right in the middle of this, and and Peter says, "You're the son of the living God." Just in case anybody's not sure, you're not the son of the god of the dead. You're the son of the living God. And of course, when Jesus later says. I'll build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. He means literally these gates. There were gates there and it was seen that the, the, there there's one legend that the cave is bottomless and uh, that, that uh, sacrifices would be thrown into it um, to, to the god Hades and to some of the other gods. And Jesus is saying not even those gates in this great temple, not even they will resist this move. So they're right in the middle of something here. So whatever else is going on in this story, this is no Sunday school. You know, if you were a kid in Sunday school, you always know the answer is always Jesus. Even if you don't understand the question, if you say Jesus, you're most likely to be right when the Sunday school teacher is giving out the koala stamps. This is not a Sunday school question. This is not a personal sort of, you know, if you have a personal faith with Jesus and you love people and try not to do any bad things, then everything's fine. That's the bulk of what Christianity is. No, this is somebody talking about real things in the real centre of power in the day they actually lived. This was So when we say son of God, that would have been part of the language of their world. The son of God is the emperor, is the one in charge. And so to call someone else that is a frightening thing to do. It's a, it's a scary thing to do, particularly since only a few chapters before, John the Baptist, who hadn't even gone that far, had already been done down by the rulers. So that's the, the volatile, charged environment this is happening in. And then Jesus says to Peter, Look, I tell you, Peter, on this rock I will build my church. And there's some understanding that the word Peter was not actually a name at this point, and Jesus was using it um, as, a, as a as a nickname, because Peter was going to be this rock, and so he he was using this this idea that Peter was a rock and that he was going to build it on a rock. And so he says to Peter, "You are the rock, and I will build my church on the rock." And of course. You can see from that cliff that, and that rock is everywhere, you know, there's, this is how the Roman Empire had built its temples, on these rocks, in these cliffs. They literally carved them out of the cliffs. So again, it's all part of something bigger that Jesus is talking about. And of course, this verse is the verse that the Roman Catholic Church used to, uh, hang the idea of a pope on. The idea that the current pope, um, is the direct descendant In a spiritual line back to Peter, who was seen as the first pope, and it's this idea that uh, one person would be the embodiment of the spirit of God on the earth, uh, and would lead the church, and would eventually become infallible, um, which is quite a recent innovation in church history. The idea that the popes, anything the pope said is is totally infallible—it's not completely true, but uh, because. Uh, Roman Catholic law is is much more complicated than that, but it's essentially what it developed to, and it made sense to think about the church the same way as you think about empire. That's how the empire worked. It was one person in charge. They used to have a republic, uh, but about 60 or so years before uh, before this happened maybe a little earlier, um, Julius Caesar came along and if you know your Roman history, uh, essentially destroyed the Republic. He, he white entered it. He said that it still existed but he completely um, took the power away from the Senate and he became the sole ruler and then his son Augustus... Uh, sort of adopted son Augustus, became the sole ruler and then he became not only the entire ruler of the empire but he became divine. God had empowered him to be the divine son of God and to rule the empire. So you can see why a a kind of a way of running the world would make sense that that would be the way the church should be too, that there should be one person. The, The Roman Catholic Church does reflect the way the Roman Empire Peter is father or papa, which is pope. And you can see how it's led through. And in fact, other church structures are not dissimilar. The Anglican church looks very much like Tudor England. Because it, de- it was developed, as, as you know, um, because Henry VIII wanted to have a divorce and that was uh, not possible within the church, so he decided he would be the head of the church. And, uh, and England at the time had a parliament. It was fairly inefficient and ineffectual, uh, but it worked to some degree and the king wasn't in sole control of the, uh, of the, the country. He had the parliament that he had to at least negotiate with because they were the, the nobles and they had a lot of power and money. the Anglican Church looks a bit like that. It's got uh, an archbishop and then a bishop and it's got a a council of clergy that are required to be taken into account in a way that the Catholic Church doesn't require it. It does take those things into account but it's not required to. And then of course you've got groups like the United Church that have come along so much later. We came along after the war. I mean they were talking about it before the war. But from the end of the war onwards until 1977, when the church finally united, it was uh, it was developed, and it was developed not unlike the way the United Nations is developed, the way um, we knew that if we didn't talk, we'd be back at war again. Um, that, That if we didn't do some really serious sitting down and talking, and the United Nations essentially is all about talk, sometimes to the point where it feels like nothing is being done but what's the alternative? Well, we know what the alternative is because we've done it. We fight each other. We uh, as uh, we stumble into war. As Christopher Clarke's famous uh, recent book, The Sleepwalkers, is the uh, the title of, of his history of the First World War. So, you know, these things are all being developed all the time like that. And so the Uniting Church has found itself, because of its time in history, t- developing a different model. You see, I don't think Jesus is saying to Peter, and this is not a criticism of Roman Catholicism, but I don't think Jesus is saying to Peter, you personally are going to be the one I build the the church on. I think he's doing, as he often does in the Gospels, talks to Peter as a spokesperson for the 12 disciples. And we know there are 12 disciples because 12 is the number of the the tribes of Israel, and the number of the tribes of Israel is is a metaphor for everything, for everyone. So Jesus has 12, not because that's a number that he liked or because he didn't want any more or he didn't have room in his car for any more. It's simply because it's a metaphor for everyone. So the disciples represent all of us. So I reckon when he was saying, I'm going to build something, he's saying, I'm going to build a new lot. Not just you 12 standing here now, but all of you, including everyone who comes later, including us. And he's going to build it on a different kind of rock than the rock at Caesarea Philippi. He's going to build it more on a bunch of people, if you like, a bunch of small rocks or, you know, a kind of pile of gravel. Don't be rude to anybody here, but that's who we are. We're the little rocks that this is being built on. It's a radically different way to do things than having one person in charge. It's a, it's a, it's a radically different way of doing things because it's a gathering of community. When Jesus says, I'm going to build my church, church is just a word for gathering. I'm going to develop a gathering out of you lot. And it's going to go on and it's going to be of such importance that even the gate of Hades, which was the most, in that town, was the most important temple, the most, important structure, even that was not going to be able to withstand this movement and it wasn't a movement of hierarchy you know Jesus says in in Luke's gospel, don't call anyone father because you're all children of God there's to be no hierarchy, you all came from the same stock, you're all a pile of pebbles on the beach and it's on this that I will build. This is the gathering. Where it's supposed to be the foundation and the building of something extraordinary, which we find hard to believe, especially when there's not many of us sitting in this massive building and it's freezing cold and, what well, what is he talking about? How could that be us? But Peter didn't get the keys to the kingdom or didn't get it opened up to him. It was all of them. There was no special control that Jesus gave to the church which is the way the church began to understand itself and then did terrible things all through history. I'm reading a history of the Jews in 14th century, uh, 13th and 14th century Spain at the moment and God, it's hard work. Nothing good happens. I mean, every now and then a little bit of goodness happens and then the church comes in and just does terrible things. And But we're being built according to Jesus, on, on gravel. It's just us. That's what, that's what Jesus is doing. And it's one of the things that we know intuitively is right because we live through the 20th century. So we know what it's like when one person is in charge. We know the names of Hitler and of Stalin And of Mao Zedong, and of Mussolini, and of Franco. And we know the names of the smaller dictators, Ceausescu and Pol Pot, and on and on, Marcos Mugabe, Pinochet. And we see them today rising up everywhere. Putin, Duterte, Kim Jong-un, Bolsonaro, and Lukashenko right now in Belarus. Where people are wanting a different way of being, and he is mercilessly controlling the population. And now, this isn't to blow the United Church's trumpet here. Um, you know, I, I'm as critical of the way we do things as anyone. But the United Church, at least on paper, is trying to do something radically different. We are not like other churches, not because we're better, but because on paper we've written something down that is really different. We've said that we're going to be a, a group of interrelated councils and no one is in charge. Everyone is in charge. We do consensus decision making and we do it terribly. We do it badly at our parish mission council, but we try. Consensus decision making uses cards that so you hold up a card to say how you're feeling about things. There's an orange card and a blue card. Now we reduce that to voting. If you're in favour, we'll do the orange card. If you're against, you we'll do the blue card. It's not actually, it's much more nuanced than that. It's about trying to make sure we hear from everybody. And when it's done well... Everyone gets to hear, and I've been in groups of 300 people where only two people have shown up, held up a blue card and said, uh, and, and have been invited to say why it is they need to dissent, or why they've still got a problem, or a, a, a still an issue with what we're dealing with. Which is so frustrating. Look how most of us are in favour of this. Why don't you just shut up and let's get on with it? It's not the way, it's not the way it's supposed to work. We're supposed to t- pay attention to everyone and it's slow and it's horrible all we do is talk most of the time but again what is the alternative? well we know what the alternative is the majority rules it's just as simple as that please you're going to have to be quiet because we know what we're doing and there are times and there have been times and the Uniting Church uh, structure allows for this. If you cannot reach any kind of consensus and if those who are not in favour of the move in this direction uh, are unable to feel co- in good conscience that they can step aside and let it happen then sometimes it has to go to a formal vote. And I think the Uniting Church on paper and in practice recognises that when it does that, it's a terrible failure. We have to move forward and so it has to be done but it's a terrible failure because we're not interested In the majority. We don't care what the majority thinks. That's not the way we feel the church has been established. It's about how we all work in it together. It's really, really hard, and I tell you what, it drives me nuts. But again, I remind myself, particularly when I'm in the middle of something where we're hearing again from the same person saying the same thing because they're so stubborn and they won't agree with me. What's the alternative? I think this might lead us to some understanding of what Jesus says which is really strange and being the basis of some terrible things happening in history. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I don't think if we believe that Jesus wasn't talking to Peter, wasn't trying to develop a hierarchy but was talking to everybody I don't think this is a licence for us to tell people and re- instruct people who's in and who's out, who's allowed and who's not allowed, who's moral and who's immoral. I think it's a much more a, a careful understanding of what it is we have to live with with each other. So we have to be really careful when we lock things down. We might have to sometimes. You might have to live in a gated community for a little while but you have to know that you're locking yourself in as well as locking them out You know, we, um, we have to have things where we are opening stuff up for everybody everybody is included in the declaration of human rights even the ratbags even the criminals even the hitlers of the world have rights because they're human that's really I don't know how to deal with that what do we do? We do with that, but that's what happens when we let things open and loose. Open them up, the things that will be loosed in heaven, which means essentially just everywhere. And I, I spent a few days trying to figure out how you, how I come to a nice conclusion for this sermon. And I haven't got a clue. I don't know where, what this really means. I, I don't think I've got the brain power to be able to unpack what it, Jesus might really mean for all of us to be talking about binding and loosing, to be to be talking about controlling and liberating. There's a lot of different ways you can translate it. I don't really think I understand it. But I think I'm being invited into it, but not by myself with all of you. And some of you, not anyone in this room of course, but there are some who I don't want to be alongside of because they don't believe the things I believe or they don't think the way I think or they've got different opinions. But we're stuck together. We're like all these stones on the beach at Columbus Bay. Some of these are granite. Some of this is uh, nice from some of the oldest rocks on earth as well and it takes a long time to end up looking like that, doesn't it? And all it is, that the reason that looks like that is water has washed back and forth Back and forth over millennia. So I'm in there somewhere, and you lot are knocking the rough edges off me, and I'm rock- knocking the rough edges off you, and I'm not sure I want that to happen, and yet that's what I want to be a part of, and that's what I am a part of, and somehow that's what we're called to. And I'm going to stop there because I really can't figure out how to stop otherwise. I will just keep going all morning. So be it. Thanks, Neil.